Good morning. Merry Christmas. That seems a long time ago, doesn't it? Seems like that's forever, but that's just a couple of days ago. Um, we're grateful for each and every one of you that are here with us uh, this morning as we go into our message time. A couple other things that we uh, need to remember in our prayers, and that is Alex's dad, Hank, will be going in for surgery. I want to say on the 8th, Alex, is that right? Uh, for his surgery. We need to be in prayer for him. Also for uh, Jenny Lossing as she goes and uh, goes back to the doctor in regards to her back. Also for a Fallon family, the Homa family, Mary Ann Homa is in ICU uh, up in Reno at Renown. And uh, so be praying for, for that family. Okay, uh, as we go to the to our message time, uh, let's uh, let's ask God's blessing now on it. Uh, as we go into his word. Uh, join me in prayer, please. Father, uh, grateful for this time, time of the year, uh, families, friends. Um, we're grateful that you're a God who hears us. You answer prayer. And uh, we uh, plead for your mercy for these people that we mentioned. Um, you know, also, uh, we just ask for uh, your grace uh, to be poured out on those that we know and love that are not yours. We ask that in your mercy that you would rescue and redeem them. Ask your blessing on our time now, and we just praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, at the homestead on Sunday afternoons, uh, we've been going through the Gospel of John, and we've been proceeding at a torrid pace. We started several months ago, and Dale Young will wrap up Chapter 3 today. And uh, it's been a, it, for me personally, and I think I speak for Dale and Chris Ward has helped fill in as, whoops, as necessary uh, in our uh, message time, been particularly satisfying for us and hopefully for those residents there and those uh, that come and help with our services. Uh, this is a book that most of us have read sometimes perhaps multiple times. And it's one of those things where we kind of think that we pretty much know it, and we find out how much we have to learn as we uh, look at it in greater detail. And so this, in this morning's time, we want to look at two individuals that we've been introduced to in the Gospel of John up to Chapter 3. One is very familiar. Uh, they're... He is a, an individual that is uh, mentioned in all four Gospels, and there's quite a little bit said about him. And the other one is mentioned only in John's Gospel. And so I want us to take a look at these two people and, and see what message they have for us in our lives. The first person I want us to look at is John the Baptist. John the Baptist would be very familiar. We've all heard of him. Um, he's a, kind of a, a central figure in the early portions uh, of these gospel narratives, and we want to get to know him a little bit better. And so we'll start off and we'll say, okay, John, what about John? What do we know about him? Well, his name, first of all, if, is, if you translated the Hebrew equivalent, equivalent for John, it means God is gracious. It's a neat name to have. And if we look at the circumstances surrounding his birth, we'll see how particularly appropriate it is. Um, John 
was the son of two Hebrew people, Zacharias and Elizabeth. Both of these people came from a priestly descent. If you went back far enough in their, in their genealogy, you would find Aaron in their, in their little uh, genealogy breakout. Well, if we look in Luke chapter 1, verse 36, we see that Elizabeth was a relative of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now, we're not told just exactly uh, what that relationship was. Uh, there is a great difference in age. As we, as we look at Zacharias and Elizabeth, we see the Bible tells us that they were advanced in age. And that's a nice way of saying they're old. And, and so Mary, Mary was a teenager at, at this point, and Zacharias and Elizabeth were advanced in age. So uh, some have suggested that perhaps Elizabeth was Mary's aunt. We don't know. We're just told that related. We see later on that after, uh, after Mary, it's been announced to Mary that she will bear Jesus, that she goes and visits Elizabeth and stays there a couple months. Uh, that was a journey of some distance, and so there was some relationship there between them. Well, Zacharias and Elizabeth were advanced in age and had no children. And it's a story that sounds pretty familiar, because if we go back hundreds and hundreds of years, we remember Abraham and Sarah, and they were old, and they had no children. And as every parent knows, this is, a, this is you know, this is something we welcome. We want to have kids. And so we'll be looking at passages in both the early, uh, uh, early chapters of Luke and the early chapters of John. And our first introduction for us today is of our story unfolds comes in Luke chapter 1, and we start at verse 12. And Luke wrote this. He said, Zacharias was troubled... When he saw the angel, see, Zacharias was ministering in the temple, and he saw an angel. Now, that would get your attention. Uh, and, he, and fear gripped him. I get that, too. In verse 13, he says, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. And so this is a very interesting thing. We need to stop and look just a minute at that phrase right there. The angel said to Zacharias, your petition has been granted. Now, Zacharias and Elizabeth were advanced in age. And how long had they been praying that they might have a child? If Zacharias and Elizabeth were probably at this point in their upper 50s, 60s, 70s, we don't know. Uh, somewhere in there, they could have been praying for perhaps 40 or 50 years to have a child. Now, they may have actually given up praying, you know, after the biological clock ran out, so to speak. They may have said, well, you know, what's the point? But it's interesting to know the angel says, first thing, it says, your petition has been heard. And God answers our prayers. Now, my dear friend William Plants would put it this way. Uh, he would say this. He says, God always answers our prayers. Sometimes he says, yes, I answer that prayer. Sometimes he says, no, I have a better plan. And sometimes he says, wait. And it seems like a lot of times, you know, when we pray, the answer is wait. 
It's not necessarily a no answer. It's, it's wait. And it doesn't mean that God's ignored us. And the angel comes and says to Zacharias, your petition has been heard. And you'll have a son, and you'll name him John. And he goes on, and it gets better. And he says in verse 14, Luke chapter 1, he says, You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. More good news. He will drink no wine or liquor. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him, capital H, meaning Jesus, in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That's all pretty good news, isn't it? That's all pretty good news. We see that John the Baptist was a Nazarite. Now, if you're more interested in that, you can look at Numbers chapter 6, and it describes in greater detail what that means. It's a vow, a voluntary vow that a person will take. Uh, that could be for a lifetime, but it didn't have to be. It could be for a, a specific period of time. Uh, we see others in the, in the Bible who took a Nazarite vow. Uh, one was Samson. One was the Apostle Paul. Another was Samuel, and there's others that are mentioned that have taken this Nazarite vow. And John the Baptist was a Nazarite. Um, We see in the gospel narratives that John the Baptist was about six months older than Jesus. Um, We don't know. We don't know much about his formative years after he was born. Uh, The first thing we hear about is in Luke chapter 1, verse 80, and talking about John the Baptist, and it says, And the child continued to grow and become strong in spirit, and he lived in the deserts in the, until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Now, when did he move out of his home and out into the wilderness to live this austere lifestyle? We really don't know. I'm speculating, and I'm going to say that probably what happened, since his parents were old, he probably lived with them and took care of them until they died. Makes reasonable sense to me. And so he, you know, perhaps his his parents lived until he was in his late teens, early 20s. Don't know, just speculation, but seems to make sense. And so he goes and lives an austere life out in the wilderness. And what did he do out there? What was his diet? Well, we see in Matthew chapter 3, verse 4, that he ate locusts and honey. He had sautéed locusts in the morning for breakfast. He had roasted locusts for lunch, and then he had pureed locusts in a sauce of honey in the evening. Now, we don't know. We don't know, but he had a very simple diet. He says he wore clothes that were made of camel's hair. You know, not comfortable, real kind of stuff. He, he lived a rough life, and it was in the wilderness. And he lived there until his start of his ministry to uh, to the uh, uh, to the people of Israel. We see the account of the start of his ministry in Luke chapter three, starting in verse two. It says, "The word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness, and he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words Isaiah the prophet. 
quote, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every ravine will be filled, every mountain will, and hill will be brought low, the crooked will become straight, and the rough roads smooth, and all flesh will see the salvation of God. John the Baptist got his job assignment. Uh, it says the word of the Lord came to John. We don't know how that happened. Was it through the words of another person? We don't know. Was it in a vision or a dream? We don't know. We simply know that the word of the Lord came to John the Baptist, and here he has his job, his ministry assignment. It says, make straight the path of the Lord. This passage out of Isaiah chapter 40 would have been very vivid and real for people in that era when royalty were about to go on a, on a journey, going to be traveling along, they would send a work crew ahead of them, an entourage ahead of them, because hard to believe, but the roads in those days were actually worse than the roads that we have in California. It's true. They were actually worse. They, you know, they, these, were, these were in need of a lot of work. There would be a lot of potholes, a lot of bumps, and so on and so forth. Well, the, the crew would go ahead of the royalty, you know, and they'd fill in the potholes, knock down the bumps. They would try to make the path straight, make that journey just as easy as possible for the royalty to travel on. They would try to avoid dangerous spots, you know, places where, where the, uh, uh, the party could be ambushed or something like that. You know, you remember all in the westerns? You know, you see the stagecoach, they'd pass through the... You know, kind of the gully between two rocks, and here comes the guys, and they go rob the stagecoach and that sort of thing. So they were, they're going to try to make the path straight. They're going to fill in, make the road smooth, and so on and so forth. And figuratively speaking, this was John's assignment. He was to do that, accomplish that thing, make the path and road easy and straight for the Messiah, for Jesus. And how did he go, was to go about doing that? He was to preach a baptism of repentance. And in order to prepare the way for the Messiah, for Jesus, uh, people had to know that they needed to change. Repentance simply means to change your mind. You know, and so he's preaching, he's preaching this message of you need to repent. The spiritual condition of the people in Israel at this time was pretty poor. They were going the wrong direction. They had the wrong idea what it meant uh, to be in a situation where they were pleasing God with their behavior and their attitudes and their thoughts. And they were, they were strictly looking at the external. And, and this was the focus. This is what they were looking at. They were looking at keeping a version, a version of the Mosaic Law with lots of traditions and so on added to it, and it was an external faith. And John the Baptist came and says, no, you need to repent. You're going the wrong direction. You know, and if you're, if you're headed on a journey and you're lost and you don't know where you're going, what's the first thing you need to do? Figure out, I'm lost. I gotta change directions. I gotta go another way. And so, in order to prepare the people to hear the message of the Messiah, which is a message of salvation through grace and mercy, people need to understand that they're heading the wrong direction. So John the Baptist preached this message of repentance. 
Well, he said, as said in Luke chapter 1, verse 16, he said, he will turn the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. This was his job description. This is what he did. Well, it's interesting to me as I see this unfold, and we see that, uh, that John the Baptist out there preaching in the wilderness. And I'm thinking to myself, how? How does this work? I mean, I, you know, I look at pictures of Israel. I've never been there. I've I, I seen pictures, and I see, you know, it's a kind of a, uh, looks like a landscape that's real similar to what we see here. And I'm thinking to myself, now, if I went out in the wilderness, you know, I went a couple miles south of uh, Kennemental on the Lovelock Highway, or went out east, like heading toward, uh, you know, toward uh, Sand Mountain or somewhere out there in that wilderness area, and I, and I was going to preach, I don't think I'd have very good luck having anybody coming to hear me. I mean, I might get my wife and my kids because they had to come. But John the Baptist, he's out in the wilderness in this area, this kind of remote area, and a lot of people are coming to hear him. How that all happened, I don't know. Obviously, you know, he must uh, at least preach some in, a, in some populated area so that word of mouth would spread. You, see, you need to go hear this guy. And so as we pick up this story, we see that large numbers of people are coming to listen to him. And this causes no small amount of concern uh, for the religious establishment. John did not seek their approval in the least. You know, he's a lone ranger. He's out there on his own. And lots of people are coming, uh, you know, and they're listening to him. And they're being affected by him. And, And so the word comes back to the religious hierarchy in Jerusalem, and they send some people out to check this guy out. They're going to find out what he's all about. And if you turn to uh, the Gospel of John in chapter 1, verse 19, uh, we pick this story up. Verse 19 of John chapter 1 says, This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed, that is John, and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, Well, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, No, I am not. Are you the prophet? And again he answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you, so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? And then John the Baptist would repeat a shortened version of that passage out of Isaiah 40. It says, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. As Isaiah the prophet said, now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him and said to him, why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? Or better put, how dare you baptize if you are not Elijah, the Christ, or a prophet. You see, the religious leadership was upset because while it was very common that Gentile converts to Judaism would be baptized, you know, this kind of a, a purific, symbol of purification, this rite that they would go through, uh, this, wasn't, this wasn't John the Baptist's target audience. His target audience was Jews. And the Jewish leadership is saying, hey, what goes on here? These people have no, no need of this. Why would you be doing this and so on and so forth? 
they took great stock in the fact that they were descendants of Abraham. And they thought, you know, we've got Abraham's blood running through our vein. We're good to go. We don't need any. So what is this? What are you doing baptizing Jews? Um, and John addressed this, and this, this comes in Luke chapter 3, verse 8. He's speaking to these leaders that are, that are questioning him, and he says this. He tells them, Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. You see, it's not important. In God's economy, it's not important who your daddy is or who your grand or great, 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 great. Way out there, it's a one-on-one thing. Uh, somebody, not me, uh, said this and put it this way. He says, God only has children. He doesn't have grandchildren. We each stand on our own before God, and whether, uh, you know, these people are saying, hey, I've got Abraham back there. He's, you know, he, and Abraham was, that's fine, that's great. But John the Baptist is saying, you know, the fact that you have somewhere in your genealogy Abraham appears in there, that and $1.50 will buy you a cup of coffee at Jerry's. It's just not, it's, it, it's irrelevant. It doesn't mean anything. On Judgment Day, God is not going to ask you who your grandparents were. He's going to ask you what you did with Jesus. That's the simple thing. And it's going to be one-on-one. I can't say, well, you know, uh, you know, my granddaddy was a preacher. Well, good. Glad to hear it. But what do you have to say? What do you have to say? So John the Baptist said, hey, this business, you being descendants of Abraham, is just really not relevant at all. John the Baptist had a great understanding of what his role was, and that was a supportive role. As we go on to John chapter 3, starting at verse 22, we see this happened, uh, set the context here. Uh, Jesus had been baptized by John, and then Jesus' followers split off. There was a division there, and they split off, and they went to another territory somewhat removed. We don't know how far away, maybe a few miles away. We don't know exactly. And John continued with his ministry with his followers. And so there's, there's two groups, and they're both, they're both ministering. And so we pick it up in, in 22 of John chapter 3, and it says, After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing, spending time with his followers and baptizing. Now, we see as we go on to chapter 4, it wasn't Jesus that was doing the actual baptizing, that his disciples were doing it under his supervision. And, and then verse 23 says, John also was baptizing in Aenon near Salem, which these are places we don't know where they were. We don't, we don't really know for sure exactly where they were. And then it says this, there was much water there. And so... It was someplace close to, to a body of water in that, in that vicinity. We don't know exactly where. And it says, and people were coming and were being baptized. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. That seems to be kind of a, duh, how could he be baptizing if he was in prison? But I believe the Apostle John is, is puts, puts that in there so he gives us a better idea of the, uh, the flow of, of chronological events there. And he throws that in there. And then here's, here's where 
it gets a little sticky. He says in verse 25, he says, therefore there arose a discussion, better a dispute, uh, on the part of John disciples with a Jew about per, a purification. And what this, what this means, what's happened, and we get the, the context of it as we go into chapter 4, what was going on is Jesus and his followers are over here, and they had their ministry going. John the Baptist is over here, and he's got his ministry going. And so this Jew was at least somewhat familiar with Jesus, and he comes to John the Baptist's group over here, and he's saying, hey, he says, do you see how successful these people are over here on Jesus' side? Their way, the message that they're preaching in regards to getting right with God and purification and something is, is better in you. And, and so they, they're hearing this from this guy and they're upset by it. They're upset that, you know, they see that their numbers are, de- are declining. Jesus is getting more popular all the time and so on. And they're upset about it, and they come to John the Baptist, and they're going to tell him, and they want him to do something about it. And we see that in verse 26, and he says, They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, that's Jesus, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. Of course, that's not true. Not all. But many were coming to him. And here's how John answered that. He said this, he says, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. John the Baptist understood what his job assignment was. His job assignment was a supportive role. His, it was to make the path straight. He was to make it easier for Jesus to do what he came to do. And He's, he understands that whatever success that he has enjoyed was a gift from God. He says it came to him from heaven. It, nothing, nothing can come unless it's been a gift to him from heaven. And so he's not, he's not going to take that bait that his followers are going you know, to, to try to get this controversy and this rivalry going. He's going to have nothing to do with that. And he says in verse 28, follow along, he says, You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. I'm going to repeat it again. He's not going to go down that road of rivalry. And he, he explains to him then, explains to his followers in verse 29, how he views things and how he views success. Verse 29, John the Baptist said, He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. In those days, the friend of the bridegroom, which we would know as the best man, had a much greater role in the wedding than is typical today. Normally, if if I'm going to be a best man, I just show up on that day and, you know, get a, put a suit on and stuff like that and, you know, just kind of stand up there with everybody else, don't really do much. In those days, that best man had a far greater role. He'd be the guy that would arrange the reception hall. He'd get in touch with the caterers, make sure there's going to be plenty of food and drink, make sure that the karaoke guy or the band or the DJ or whatever it might be got there at the right time, make sure the preacher show up on time, all this sort of thing. He'd be responsible for all that. Now, Here's the thing. John the Baptist understood full well 
how the best man would gauge his success, whether he did a good job. And how would that be? The best man did his job if he was invisible. If the ceremony went off without a hitch, that there was plenty of food, plenty to drink, you know, the preacher showed up on time, the tuxes fit, all that kind of stuff. If that all happened as it was supposed to, that best man was invisible. If anybody noticed the best man, there was trouble. Things didn't happen the way they were supposed to. And so John the Baptist is saying he's just like the best man. And, he's, and he says that the fact that, the, the, as he says, the groom was doing well, in this case Jesus, he said, my joy has been made full. He was invisible. Nobody noticed him and shouldn't notice him, and that's the way he gauged success. John would have nothing to do with any sort of rivalry with Jesus. On the other hand, he knew they were on the same team. Well, ultimately, King Herod would have John the Baptist thrown into prison and later have him beheaded for John confronting him about his relationship with Herodias. And this is a story that you can't make up. Okay, Herod's half-brother, Philip, was married to Herodias. Okay? Herodias was Philip's niece. Your problem with that? Okay. Now, Herodias gets rid of Philip and marries Herod, who is also her uncle. (laughs) So she goes from one incestuous relationship to another. And John the Baptist confronted Herod about this. And what does Herod do? He throws him in prison. And the Bible says that he would have liked to go ahead and had him executed, but he was afraid of popular opinion because people regarded John the Baptist as a prophet. And, and so he didn't. But the day came when, to please Herodias' daughter, he would have John the Baptist beheaded and executed. So it did not end well in that regard for John the Baptist. Well, the next person I want us to look at is a man by the name of Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is a man that only appears in the Gospel of John. He appears in three places. He appears in chapter 3, he appears again in chapter 7, and he appears finally in, in chapter 19. And we're introduced to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 1. If you want to join me there, we're going to read from verse 1 through verse 10. The Apostle John wrote, he says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, and he came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born again when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. 
The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going, and so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Then verse 9, Nicodemus says, To him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? So we see a couple things here, very interesting things, I think. First of all, Nicodemus is identified as a Pharisee. Now, a Pharisee at that time uh, was a group of people, six to 7,000 in number, and these were people that were consumed with adherence to at least their interpretation of the Mosaic Law. Very strict, uh, uh, you know, adherence to that. They added some of their own traditions to go along with it because, obviously, Moses didn't do a good enough job. And so, again, it was a, a very external type of religion. It's all about the things we do, you know, and we do all these things right. And if you don't do things the way we do them, you're messed up. And he was a Pharisee, and he was part of that group. The, you know, the strict adherence to the Mosaic Law. Uh, Warren uh, Wiersbe put it this way. He said, they know the facts, they just didn't know the truth. That's a good way to put it. And so this was what Nicodemus was. Nicodemus was also, our text tells us, was a ruler of the Jews. That meant he was a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was kind of the supreme council or court of Israel at that time. It had 70 members, which were chosen from the priests, elders, and so on, the leaders. And they had a head. They had one more, the chief priest, and he was kind of the CEO or the chief justice, if you will. And they were a very powerful group in Israel at that time. They uh, Obviously, they sat under the authority of the Roman government, but they had their own police force and so on. They could arrest people. They were They were pretty powerful. And... They were they stayed in existence until AD 70 when Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed, and then they were they were just wiped out. That was the end of them. But Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin, and he was also our text tells us in verse 10 it says he was the teacher of Israel. So he's he's one of the top dogs. He's the go-to guy. If you have a question, you want to know something, you go to Nicodemus. This guy knows he's the teacher. He's not just a teacher. He's the teacher of Israel. He knows it. He'll have the answers. He's very well learned. He knows these things. And he comes to Jesus, and he addresses Jesus in the term of rabbi. Very respectful term. This is, this is really kind of surprising, given the fact that, A, he's a Pharisee. B, he's a member of the Sanhedrin. But we notice one thing. He comes to Jesus. When does he come to him? comes to him at night. That's not accidental. He came to him at night because he was scared. He was afraid of what might be said about him or done to him, as we'll see later on, had people known that he was coming to Jesus during the daylight hours. You see, the Pharisees and the religious establishment had already made their mind up about Jesus, and that already came earlier. Uh, after Jesus made his first appearance, they already had made their mind up. His first appearance, as far as they were concerned, was in, uh, in Jerusalem at the temple 
if you remember that event where he comes in there and he cleans house. He gets rid of all the people that are, you know, selling sacrificial animals, and you've got the money changers over here that are, are charging excessive exchange rates to uh, convert foreign currency to the Jewish currency, and he, he just throws their tables at, and he just cleans house. He gets rid of them all. Well, guess what? The religious establishment saying, hey, that's our territory. What do you think you're doing coming in here and upsetting anything? You didn't get permission from us to do this. And they already figured out that this guy, hey, he's, he's out there. And we don't, we don't want, he doesn't fit what we say the Messiah ought to look like. And, and so they were already in opposition to him. And Nicodemus was afraid what would be said or what could be done if people knew that he was coming to Jesus in the daylight. So he goes at night because he's scared. And he addresses Jesus as rabbi, which is a very respectful term, particularly considering that he's who? He's the teacher of Israel. And he comes to him and he addresses him as rabbi, and he says, no one could do the things you're doing unless you came from God. After Jesus cleaned house in the temple, the Bible tells us that he went and he performed many signs, which were miracles, and we're not really told exactly what those were. But anyway, Nicodemus obviously had to observe those. Some of those, at least, he probably heard Jesus speak on an occasion or two, and he was convinced that Jesus deserved a second look. And so he comes to Jesus at night and addresses him as rabbi. And Jesus' response is very interesting. He doesn't go through any formalities or anything like that. He doesn't say, well, I appreciate, compliment, this, that, and the other thing. No, he, in effect, what he does is this. He says, you address me as teacher? Okay. Fine. School is in session. And he goes right to it. He wastes no time, and he goes to one of the most important fundamental uh, uh, tenets of the Christian faith, and he says, you've got to be born again. And Nicodemus is he's just shaking his head. He can't get his mind around this whole concept. Bear in mind, he comes from a tradition that says it's all about observing the external things. And if you do all those things right, you're in good shape. And Jesus said, wait a minute, you've got to be born again. And it's clear that he's not talking about some external thing. He's talking about being born again from the inside out, being changed from the inside out, not from the outside in. And Nicodemus is having a tough time, and he's not understanding it. And Jesus is holding class, if you will, and he's trying to explain to him. He uses a, you know, kind of a, an example of how how the wind blows and everything like this, and Nicodemus is still, he's still kind of befuddled, and he's not getting it. And he says in verse 9, finally, he says, how can these things be? He's not saying to Jesus, these things can't be. He's saying, how can they be? I'm not getting it. I can't connect the dots. I don't know, I don't know what you're getting at. I'm not understanding it. And so after this, Jesus continues to hold class and he goes on to some verses, the verses that Woody covered, if you were here on the Christmas Eve service, these verses surrounding John 3.16. These were delivered for the first time to who? To Nicodemus. And it goes through this whole thing, this wonderful passage of Scripture that is so precious to so many people. Jesus goes through this with Nicodemus, and Nicodemus is still struggling. 
I believe Nicodemus came sincerely wanting to, wanting to get it. But he was having, he was struggling. He had, he is having trouble getting it. Well, it's interesting thing. It's an interesting thing to see the next time we find Nicodemus, we find him in John chapter 7, verse 50. And the situation here is they are deciding what to do about Jesus. They, the, the establishment pretty well made up their mind already, but people are going and listening to Jesus, and it's like, I said, this, you got to listen to this guy. Nobody has talked like him. And how does the religious establishment respond to that? They said to him in verse 50, or or, or prior to this, I'm sorry, Nicodemus, this was him who came to Jesus before being one of them, being one of the Pharisees, one of the Sanhedrin. They're they're lambasting anybody who believes and thinks that Jesus might be for real. They're saying, wait a minute, you know, does anything good come out of Galilee? You know, it's like Galilee is the south side of the tracks. This is South Central Oakland or someplace like that. You know, nothing good comes out of there, and this is where this guy came from. And so Nicodemus responds this way. He says in verse 51, he says, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? So he sticks up for Jesus. And how did they respond to him? They answered him. He says, You are not also from Galilee too, are you? They're saying, and now this is interesting. You know, he is the teacher of Israel. He's high, he's high up there. He's, and, and now they're accusing him. They're turning on him right there. They're saying, All right, you're from Galilee too. You're as messed up as this guy. And they're rejecting him. He's, Nicodemus stands up for him. And then finally, the last time we, we see Nicodemus is in chapter 19, verse 39 of God's, John's Gospel. And what has happened is Jesus uh, has died on the cross. And Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus asked for his body. And we see in verse verse 39 of John 19, Nicodemus, who had, incidentally, uh, Joseph of Arimathea was also a Pharisee, um, had first come to him by night, this is Nicodemus, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds of weight. This would have been a small fortune. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. So Nicodemus came the first time to Jesus at night because he's afraid. The next time we see him, he stands up for him. And then the third time we see him, he asks for his body. He identifies with a man who had just been executed. Quite a transformation. So sometime between chapter 3 and chapter 7, Nicodemus connected the dots. He understood. He got it. And Nicodemus, we have every reason to believe that Nicodemus was born again. He finally understood, and he got it. Well, what can we take away from all these, from these two people who, they're a lot different. You know, there's two complete different kind of personalities in here. What is in common with them? What can that mean as far as for us today? Well, one thing that was common in both men was their great humility. Um, 
Jesus defined greatness for us. In chapter 1 of Luke, remember we read that we said that uh, John the Baptist would be great in the sight of the Lord. Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, that no one had, that had been born up to that time was greater than John the Baptist. And so, how does God and how does Jesus define greatness? What made John the Baptist great in God's eyes? Was it he baptized 6,329 people? No, that's not it. That's not it at all. What made John great in God's eyes was his humility. In Luke chapter 14, again in Luke chapter 18, in the epistle to James and the epistle to Peter and many other places in the Bible, we get greatness defined for us. And... From Jesus' mouth, he says this, He who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And John the Baptist was steadfast in his rejection of receiving people's praise and and adulation and all this kind of stuff. You know, people came to him and says, Oh, are you the Messiah? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? Now, he had accumulated great a great number of people that were attracted to him in his ministry. And, hey, don't think that he wasn't tempted to say, oh, this is golden. If I can get these crowds out in the middle of nowhere, what is possible if we go to Jerusalem? And, you know, we can have a speaking and a book signing tour, and we can, you know, we can you know, charge 20 shekels of admission for people to come and listen to me speak. And, you know... Yeah, so what? It's okay. No. He refused that. He refused to be tempted by that. He understood his role, and he was good with his role, and he judged his success based on how successful Jesus was rather than himself. So he humbled himself before God, and that is what made him great. He understood that anything... Anything good that he accomplished or anything good that he was was a gift to him from heaven. We talked about that. It says man can't have nothing unless it's given to him from above. James, in James chapter 1, verse 17, he says, All uh, good things come down from the Father of lights from which there is no shadow or shifting. Understand, everything that we have or good or any good that we are is a gift to us. Now, the fact that I'm so handsome, can I take credit for that? That's a gift. Are you? <laughs> okay. All right. I'll use another example. You know, there, I know in our, in our congregation here, we have, we have some very educated people. We have some teachers. We actually have some doctors. We have the mayor. I mean, we've got lots of, lots of really important people. Is that a testimony to their greatness? The Bible says no. It's a gift to them. And so the best you can say is, you know, they received something. They received that gift as given to And John understood that, and he was okay with that. He was fine with his, with his ministry assignment. And, you know, this is good, this is good uh, uh, application for us here. You know, everybody's got a different role. Everybody's got a different role. And, you know, J.C. Ryle, uh, he put it kind of this way. He says, you know, not many can be 
wealthy and famous, not many will be, you know, uh, you know, well-known, not many will be, you know, this great evangelist or something like that. He said, but even the most, even the poorest believer can clothe themselves in humility. And every one of us, each of us, has a specific spot to fill. If you look to 1 Corinthians 12, look to, look to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, it's talking about each of us were designed by God to fill a particular niche. And that's, that's good. John the Baptist had his niche. There never will be another one like him. There never will be another one like Nicodemus. Uh, but, you know, each of us have our spot to fill. And we ought to be okay with that. That's all right. You know, we, John the Baptist didn't try to be somebody he wasn't. And neither should we. You know, there's a saying in, in our work. He says, every, every farmer wants to have a truck, and every trucker wants to have a farm. And it's just, you know, there's something about this discontent, you know, of not being content to be who we are. And John the Baptist was, as should we. We have our spot, and that's important. It's just not the same as everybody else. Yours is different than mine. John the Baptist was very humble. How about Nicodemus? Was he a humble man? Absolutely. You've got to be humble. You're the teacher of Israel. And you've got to go to go to somebody and say, teach me. Teach me. He was humble. He was willing to listen. He was willing to understand that he didn't know it all. You can't learn anything if you know everything already. And Nicodemus was humble, and he understood that. And he accepted that. Well, what else? Both men were very courageous. John the Baptist, you know, absolutely pulled no punches. He just told things the way they were. And, you know, that would be offensive to some people. But that didn't stop him. And he had to know when he confronted Herod about his situation that that was, good, that was a dangerous move. Now, he probably didn't realize that it was going to cost him his life, but he knew you don't confront the king. He's got all the power. What do you have? But yet, he spoke the truth. He spoke the truth. He was a courageous, very courageous individual. He was courageous from the get-go. What about Nicodemus? Was he courageous? Absolutely. He stood up in, in chapter 7 to John. He stood up before his cohorts, the guys that he had, you know, he was part of that team for, for years. And he stood up for Jesus at a time when the mind, their minds were already made up. It wasn't like, it's like, well, maybe if I reason with these people that they're going to come around. Their minds were long ago made up. Jesus didn't fit their plan, didn't fit their mold. And furthermore, he hadn't come to them for permission to do what he was doing. And Nicodemus stood up for him. Then finally, after Jesus went to the cross, he and Joseph of Arimathea go and ask for the body. Did that take courage? I think so. This guy had just been executed. And you want to, you know, you want to say, oh, I'm with him? Ask yourself this question. How many people do you think a few weeks ago when the uncle of Kim Jong-un was executed in North Korea, how many people do you think came up and said, you know, hey, he's my guy. I really like 
Yeah, hey, whatever he said, I'm in with him. No, the response would have been exactly the opposite. I don't, I don't know who you're talking about. I don't know that guy. He's my friend. Oh, no, 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 no. Nicodemus was courageous. And it's interesting to note this, and this should be great encouragement for every one of us. Is While John the Baptist was courageous and all that kind of stuff from the get-go, right from the very beginning, Nicodemus was not. He, that was a transitional thing for him. Went from being scared to see him at night to standing up for him to finally really aligning himself with a guy that had just been executed. That was in stages. And, you know, for us, we wonder at times, we probably do, I do, uh, you know, will we, will we be courageous? At the time where it really comes where we've got to stand up for what we believe, will we, will we be courageous? Or also we can say, you know, so-and-so that I know doesn't measure up. So-and-so, you know, they claim to be Christian, and yet, you know, they're, they're kind of timid, perhaps. You know, they haven't, they haven't really stood up and stood out. And so we can be tempted to say, look at them. You know, they're not, they're not measuring up. Maybe not their time. Maybe not our time yet. See, God gives us what we need when we need it, not ahead of time. You know, we, as humans, we want to gather this up, this measure of God's grace, and we kind of want to, you know, hold it right here. Like, okay, I've got it now, and I'm ready for anything. That's not the way God works. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, he says, Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and grace to help, when? In the time of need. See, we don't gather it up like this and say, oh, now I'm ready to go. God says, no, it'll be ready for you when you need it. You don't need it now. You'll need it then. You know, it's just like, I don't have a smartphone, but I know many people that do. And, you know, all your movies and all this other kind of stuff that you can access on your smartphone is not in your smartphone, is it? It's in the cloud. I don't understand that. I don't understand how all that works. But it's out there in the cloud. And so you got your smartphone, and yeah, you can get this movie down there, but it's not there. It's not on your smartphone right now. You get it when you need it, and it comes out of the cloud. And that's a poor example, but it's the best one I can give you as to how God works. He gives it to you when you need it. And he gives your neighbor it when they need it. And... Those two come on different schedules. If John the Baptist looked at Nicodemus, he could have said, well, this guy, you know, he's way behind. Why isn't he not doing, you know, why isn't he somewhere else, somewhere better than he is right now? Well, it comes at different times for each of us. It's a different, it's a different time schedule. Um, you know, uh, one other thing I think, and, and uh, uh, we need to consider is this, is John the Baptist resisted this attempt to be in rivalry, in rivalry with, with Jesus' ministry. He refused to go down that road. And that should be a good lesson for us. 
You know, this is not the only place where God's truth is being preached. There are other places. And where God's gospel is advanced and they are successful, this should cause us to rejoice. Just like John the Baptist says, and my joy has been made full. He's looking at the big picture. He's looking at the team. John realized he was just part of the team. We're just part of the team. And so, you know, as we're getting into playoffs and everything like that, you know what's going to be successful are the, are the good players that play together as a team. You know, we're just part of it. And others, and, and so we shouldn't be, we should rejoice when other parts of our team are successful. That's not to say we put our stamp of approval on people that are not saying the truth. There's heresy in our community as well. And we need to be discerning. But where the truth is being preached and successful, we should rejoice as well. And then finally, as we close, one other thing about about Nicodemus um, that I hadn't really fully appreciated until I got looking at this a little bit closer. You know, that that precious passage uh, surrounding John 3.16 was given to Nicodemus. And had Nicodemus not come to Jesus that night and said, Rabbi, had school not been in session that night, would we have had, well, we certainly wouldn't have had it that way. We might have got a similar message later on. But this, these verses that have been so powerful in so many lives through the ages came because Nicodemus came and humbled himself and said, teacher, teach me. Um, over the last year and a half or so, one particular verse has been particularly meaningful and precious to me, and that's, that's Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, and that says this, Without faith it is impossible to please God, for he would come to him must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. And Nicodemus, I believe, came to Jesus in complete sincerity. And how was he rewarded? He was the first one ever to hear those verses that many consider to be most precious to them in all the Bible. Now, if we come to, to Jesus and sincerely ask of God, will he not treat us the same? Will he not reward us for that? I believe he will, and I believe he does. And so this is what we take away from these, from these guys. And um, hopefully... You know, there's something there that that struck home for you. Uh, it certainly has uh, for those of us that have worked our way through this uh, through this text. So, anyway, um, thanks for listening, and uh, let's close in prayer. Father, we're grateful again uh, for your word. We're grateful for the message it sends to us. Thank you so much. Thank you uh, um, that uh, we can be great in your sight uh, if we. Um, understand who we are, who you are, and know the difference and appreciate that and are uh, willing to listen and to be humble. Uh, And, Father, thank you that you generously reward uh, those who come to you in in sincerity and faith. Uh, That's great. That's great to know. That's great to know and great to know that you provide grace and mercy, uh, not now, but just when we need it, just at the right time. And so we're grateful for that. Thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen.